With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. This is BC Radio Live with Philip and Eric. Live online at blogtalkradio.com slash bcradio. Aloha! Tonight on BC Radio Live, we are going to have some fun. We are going to talk to Anne Valite, the author of Kitchen Literacy, How We Lost Knowledge of Where Food Comes From and Why We Need to Get It Back. Also joining us tonight is James D. Stein, the author of How Math Explains the World, a guide to the power of numbers from car repair to modern physics. And our musical guests tonight are the New York City psychedelic garage rock band, Crazy Mary. It is Wednesday, June the 4th, and this is BC Radio Live. The chat room is now open at blogtalkradio.com slash bcradio, and the live video feed is now running. I am Philip Wynn, Chief Geek at BC Magazine, and I am joined tonight by Eric Olson, founder and publisher of BC Magazine. Hello, Eric. Philip, how are you? I am doing well. And also with us tonight is Lisa McKay, executive editor of BC Magazine. Welcome, Lisa. Thank you. Good evening to both of you. Good evening to you. Now, aren't you a pretty good cook, Lisa? I am, if, so, I, if I do say so myself. Well, I, I had that sense. So um, we, I, you and Anne should bond, don't you think? I would think so. Yeah, it looks, so. looks real interesting. And I was, as, as, as usual, didn't actually read the book because these things always come in with with little time to spare but I did look through it pretty carefully and was going over all the attended paperwork and whatnot and it's uh it's a really fascinating look at uh you know um, how especially in America or in the western world our views of food have changed and and really come around now full full circle where local and organic has become have become buzzwords uh once again which was the way it was prior to about 100 years ago. And um, so it's really interesting to see how that pattern's gone, and that's what that's what her book is about. And people are relearning what, what they used to know out of necessity about oh. about food. Well, the yeah, thing I'm, I'm most curious about is, is long book titles. Man, how about that math book? That, that's one heck of a subtitle, but, you know, he's a math guy. By the way, I noticed uh, Mr. James D. Stein is from... Redondo Beach, where I used to live. It is a small world indeed. <laughs> but yeah, how math explains the world: colon, a guide to the power of numbers from math repair to modern physics, and that doesn't even include the hodgepodge of numbers between on the on the cover of the book between the title and the subtitle. So I'm wondering, are we supposed to include those as well? I think not. I have to say, actually, Kitchen Literacy wins out by having a two-word shortcut title, so you don't actually have to uh, spell out the entire title of the book. But I'm I'm looking at a printout right here in my hand, and technically it looks like the Kitchen Literacy title is a, is just, you know, it's maybe an eighth of an inch longer printed in a, in a proportional font. So, I mean, they're both really long titles. Yeah, it's James D. has, has a, a four-line subtitle, and Anne's is a three-line subtitle. But... Hers is wider. So I bet you could use mathematics to explain that. <laughs> well, the, the fun thing is I, I, I wonder why fiction writers don't do really long titles like that. You could, you could have something like, you know, John Grisham's The Firm, a story of how a guy gets caught up in a world of legal intrigue and almost loses <laughs> his marriage and – oh, wait. All right, well, uh, I, I – we are nothing if not transparent here, and you know we don't we don't go for stuff like professionalism. Not that we're not professional, but I mean we it's not like we pretend that we're off doing something. So I'm going to go off the line for a moment here. I'm going to give Anne a call and uh, and see Find what what. 
Yeah, all right. So uh, talk soon. Well, I, I, we, we can easily fill this time. Um, Lisa, can I challenge you right here live on the air while there's at least one person in the chat room and several listeners? Do you sure. want to call in to the uh, new political radio show Sunday evening? <laughs> Any Sunday evening. And whatever should we argue about, Philip? Oh, us argue? Lisa, how could we ever argue? I mean, <laughs> clearly two brilliant people such as ourselves must agree on every political issue, right? Oh, I'm absolutely certain that we do. And, <laughs> you know... <laughs> because how could you disagree with me, being so smart How could I disagree with you? I mean, you know, we're, we're on the air, and, and I genuinely like you, so yeah, how yeah. could we disagree? Exactly. So we'll just have to politely suggest that the other's favorite candidate for president eats babies um, and, and that obviously uh, goats are sacrificed at midnight on that candidate's birthday or something like that, but, but all in a spirit of camaraderie. And no, uh, no, that's actually the new, my new political show. It, uh, it's The Outsider, Sunday evenings at 6 p.m. Eastern, uh, streaming live for an hour. And I just want to point out to anyone who hasn't actually tried it, it's actually more difficult than you'd think to talk for an hour by yourself. That's all, just monologue for an hour. Um, you, you think it's easy, but, it, but it, it turns out, you know, about 30, 40, maybe 50 minutes into it, you really start to run out of steam and get thirsty. Do you think people really think that's an easy thing to pull off? I am back. Maybe not. Having, I bet having... Eric could talk monologue for an hour without a problem. No That's problem. Man, and I've been monologuing a lot lately. Hello? Yeah, yes. Am I on? Yeah, no, we've been doing all these other interviews because we've had interviews that they right. could only do in the daytime, you know? And right. uh, so we've been doing them on. So, I mean, I've had an interview like, you know, four out of the five last uh, weekdays, I believe. Anyway, got a hold of Anne. Um, uh, some sort of cosmic. Uh, she was she was struck by cosmic dust and thought the interview was tomorrow. So uh, she said, "Who are you?" When I called, <laughs> and, and why are you calling me? Uh, well, you know, because you're supposed to be on the radio right now. So anyway, uh, you were. Right. How do you always know how to pronounce these people's names? I would have said Valises for sure, but it is Valises. Oh, I'm good. I, I can't well, reveal my secrets. These are the the tricks of the trade. How did you know? I, well, because I sure did. Uh, well, I can, I can actually tell you in the interest of transparency, I went to kitchenliteracy.com, which, by the way, is her site, and uh, hunted down uh, a YouTube interview or YouTube commercial for her book that she did where she says, hello, I'm Ann Valisis. Ah, uh, yeah, I saw that, but I didn't have time to get to that. I was, I was reading the interviews and whatnot there. So, um, yeah, anyway, she was going to call right back, and she's set and ready to go, and I would, I would guess is there by now or will be shortly. I don't know, well. Pretty close. As soon as she is, I'll just interrupt and cut off. Oh, here we go. Okay. Well, let me um, let me just say that uh, there we go. If you ask most people where food comes from, the answer is most likely to be either the grocery store or the drive-through window. Um, however, author Ann Valisis believes our disconnection from the source of our food is important, and she has charted uh, how this happened over the last two centuries. Her new book is called Kitchen Literacy, How We Lost Knowledge of Where Food Comes From and Why We Need to Get It Back. And you'll find more information about it at the website kitchenliteracy.com. Ann Valisis is here to talk with us right now. Welcome to BC Radio Live, Ann. Thank you very much, Eric. Well, I'm Eric. That was Philip, and Lisa's on here too. But, but you're welcome nonetheless. How are you? Okay, <laughs> good. <laughs> hey, it's a really great book. As usual, I <laughs> these things come in. I don't have quite – they come in late. don't have quite time to actually read it, but I'm getting pretty good at, at, at getting a sense of a book, and I kind of flip through the whole thing and read portions yeah. of it, and it's, it's uh, really fascinating. How did you come to have the idea to trace you know, the history of our relationship with food? Well, it came to me just because I was shopping like everyone does, you know, as you as, – um, he said, "We're either, you know, we think food comes from the supermarket or from the drive-in uh, at a at a restaurant, and that's kind of how it was for me. I was just shopping at supermarkets, and but somehow it just kind of struck me all of a sudden that I I knew so little about my food, and somehow I, you know, I was just struck by the absurdity of how little we know, and I wondered how on earth did we get into this situation where we know so little about what we eat and think it's just normal, and because I'm a historian." And because I have a background in, in particular in environmental history, um, the, 
I had this interest, in, um, and I thought, gosh, it would be really um, fascinating to understand how what we've known about food has changed and how our awareness of, you know, of land has changed as well as a result. So that's, what, that's kind of what got me into it. And then I just thought it would be fun to understand the stories of this change. Um, I thought, you know, real people face this issue of how they know their food all through life, and, um, and I just kind of thought that angle on it would be different and interesting, and it was. So as a historian, my be- I kept my bead on what, what people knew about their food as the distance between farms and kitchens grew over the past 200 years. Um, and so I went back to the 1790s. That's where I started my book because that's the decade when the first cookbook in America was published, and also it's a decade when we have a really good diary of um, of one of the women who kept a, one of the first diaries in America that gave me some great insights into what it was really like to prepare a meal 200 years ago. And I found some really interesting different things. Um, for example, I was amazed to realize that people really expected to know specific stories about their foods. If you look at that old cookbook, um, the cookbook recommends that if you that fish that are caught under a waterfall taste better than fish that are caught in still water, for example. Oh, interesting. Why do you think that is? Well, if that, I think it might actually be because, uh, you know, that there may have been water pollution problems in some areas. And uh, But I just think it's also that people were aware of place as part of their sense of taste um, in a way that we just don't have as much or we don't have now. I mean, I think it's changing right now. People are beginning to try to relearn this and re-understand this. But I think at that time, that was just more a part of how we thought about food, place. Another thing I found... You, okay. Sorry, go ahead. I was just saying another part of that, it, just from this of this contrast, is when it came to meat, um, these early cookbooks recommended that people know the, for example, with mutton, that it be between two and three years old, um, that it be grass-fed and female. So these are the kinds of specific things, specific stories and background of the animal that becomes meat, um, you know, that someone would have expected to know back then, but nowadays are completely off our radar screen, you know, when you go to the supermarket, of course. Identify that mutton. <laughs> right. New, new packaging requirements, that would be interesting. <laughs> right. You, you were talking about place. One of the things that I, I think is interesting is how, most of us don't realize just how far our foods have traveled before you know we pick them up in the in the grocery store or at the local restaurant. Can you talk a little about that? Yeah, I mean, they say now that food travels on average 1500 to 2500 miles in America before it gets to our plate. And I think I think that personally I think I'd guess the statistic may even be um longer now because I think just in, in a very recent times we've had a lot more produce coming from Chile, of course, which is so so distant. But um so of course, having food travel all that distance creates some some troubles. Uh, we can't know where it came from or how it was raised. Uh, it burns, of course, a lot of fossil fuel to get to us. And um, and lastly, by the time it gets to us, it's not always so fresh and nutritious. So, you know, we've kind of developed into this food system where food comes from so far away because of all these market forces, which kind of propel prices and quality downward. But um, as a result, we have some environmental consequences and some health consequences, and you know the food doesn't taste as good. Seems to me part of it is we demand to have the maximum variety in order to achieve that variety because we are still talking about things that that are grown, whether they be plants or animals, and and do come from some location. And and no matter how how hard we fight it. Uh, I think, I guess, especially with plants, you know, they grow better in some places than others and during some seasons than others. So, Well, the, that's the, part of it, but, you know, it also has a lot to do with the way food has been marketed and, and the way, um, for example, tomatoes were grown all across America through the middle of the 20th century. And it's only because of kind of the way the consolidation of food marketing in California worked and, and big irrigation projects and stuff that actually make it it cheaper to grow tomatoes in California for processing. But there used to be um, tomatoes processed or grown for processing all across America and also um, for fresh consumption all across America. And so uh, it's because I think people 
kind of got into the habit of thinking that, first of all, eating a lot more processed foods than fresh foods and valuing that more. Um, so that, I mean, that was part of it as well. Really interesting. Uh, since you covered this, this whole 200-year period, 200-year-plus now period, was the change from local and, and awareness and, and that just being the norm, was it a gradual movement over that whole time or, or was it more of a big jump? Um, seems like something was going on. There's a lot of changes around 100 years ago. Yeah, I would say it was a, kind of a little bit of both, but there was definitely a big jump about 100 years ago because um, probably around the 18, after the Civil War, basically 1880s and 90s, America really started to become an urban nation. And so our cities just grew. And of course, that created the situation where we had to figure out how are we going to supply cities with food. And also that meant there were a lot more people who were working in cities doing you know, working at factories, working at shops, all that kind of stuff that people do in cities and not growing their food anymore because they were living in apartments or um, and such and didn't have the space. So that big transformation in how we, how we live, how we use land, how we live our day-to-day lives really drove the industrialization of, of food. And then, you know, with my book, I really focus on how did that change how we think about food and what we know about food and what is our relationship with food. And so that, of course, um, was a little bit more gradual and was related to, to the first. What, what are some examples of how that change occurred? Well, for example, I mean, one of the things I think that was really interesting um, to me was that, you know, nowadays processed, what we call processed foods are so common because we're, you know, we've got, everybody's got cans in their cabinets and boxes of this and that, cereal, crackers, everything. Um, but when these kinds of products first came on the, onto the market, which was about 120 years ago, people were really skeptical of them because they didn't know what was inside the those, the packages. I mean, they weren't familiar with the concept that you could um, that you would just buy the package and not know what was in it. They were used to evaluating their foods with their senses, um, and so we had to really learn this whole realm of relying on um, brand names and marketing and packages for our information, not only our information, but for what was important. So one of the things I I found interesting in in my looking at at this phase of things and this part of things was if you go back to the very early packages and ads, you'll find that they really um, expressed the things people expected to know in the traditional era, um, the kinds of of things of how how foods were made and um, or where they came from, how they were made, that kind of stuff. Then if you follow through time over the course of about 20 to 30 years, you start seeing that other things become more important. For example, things like is the food modern or sanitized or um, scientific even. Those are the kinds of terms that start being more important in our culture. And um, it's really interesting to see that transformation. Even farther along, I noticed that um, instead of focusing on the context of how things are made or even what's in the package, there's a total focus instead on what is this product going to do for me? Is it going to make me happy? Is it going to make my husband happy? And so it's almost like there's a disconnect from the reality of food production and all of, a, all of a, our thinking about food is more related to the consumption part and, and not just is it going to taste good, but uh, a whole range of other sentiments and, and ideas. So it was really interesting to trace that, that transformation. Yeah, at some point it seems like convenience for convenience sake became uh, a value, became a good unto itself. Yeah, and that actually didn't even happen until probably the 50s and 60s. And again, people were skeptical of it because if you think about it, before convenience foods, uh, a mother or other women did the cooking in a family, and that was kind of part of what um, kind of what they did and what was expected of them. So it was really a huge cultural transformation to turn that over to factories and to anonymous uh, businesses. And so, in fact, there was a lot of, uh, you know, marketing and repackaging of what constituted smarts in the kitchen, what I call kitchen literacy. You know, before it was important to know what was the genuine article, where did it, you know, what did it smell like, what... um, what was when, when when was it right? Things like that. After this transformation, it became important to buy the thing that was the fastest book cook, um, and you were smart if you if you could take these shortcuts. 
And you know, there's some, of course, benefit. There's so many, so many benefits to people. Of, you know, at that time also, we started having an economy where men and women needed to both work jobs to earn money to pay for all the things that Americans really like to have in their houses. And so, um, you know, women did need more time to do those kinds of jobs, to do that kind of work. Um, that's definitely part of it. But I think what happened um, is that we kind of threw the baby out with the bathwater. We sort of accepted that. That the idea that these kinds of foods were really going to be good and good for us, and I think it's turning out that that's not really the case, and uh, and so I'm, I think I'm really excited because I think people are now trying to find new solutions, ways to get better food, food that has um, that's you know produced in a more sustainable way and that's better tasting and that that still will somehow fit into our lives. So what is your prescription then for, for making things better? I mean, if we, we need to learn about where our food's coming from and we need to find different ways of getting our food. Are you emphasizing, I mean, it sounds like a combination then of, of locally grown, uh, you know, meats and produce as well as organically produced perhaps meats and produce? Yeah. I think. Well, I mean, what I think we need to do as consumers is I think we need to start start looking at, yeah, exactly what you said, start shopping at places like farmer's markets, buying more organic foods. And it's not easy because there are things that you need to learn about. Uh, you know, sometimes people will ask me, well, what's more important, local or organic? Well, you know, I think it's important to support your local farm first. But, you know, sometimes if your local farm can't produce something, it's really important to buy organic because I think we need to support a pesticide uh, the moving in the direction of a pe pesticide-free agriculture or less pesticide agriculture. Um, so those are things that we can do as consumers. There's another really interesting thing that's happening in cities all across America, um, CSAs, Community Supported Agriculture, where people, where people sign up with farms ahead of time and then um, get big boxes of vegetables, cheeses, different things every week through harvest season. That's really popular and a wonderful way to get to know your food better. And, of course, people can start gardens as well in a really small space. That's one of the things I did as I was working on my book, and um, I found it to be a remarkable and very rewarding experience. And um, it was, wasn't as hard as I thought it would be, and I grew lots of wonderful salad things and vegetables. And um, I think a lot of people are trying out these, these different things. And um, I think it will really help to push the food system. I think it's already having a tremendous effect. We also have to support policies um, for land use and for uh, support of organic agriculture, I think, in a more, um, you know, politically as well. But as consumers, I think, uh, you know, voting with our forks is, is really important. Because right now, some of that uh, locally grown organic stuff is quite expensive. It seems to taste about 10 times better, but <laughs> pretty close to that as well. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting time, and I'm curious about what's going to happen because, of course, food costs of all sorts are rising rapidly. I mean, it's just incredible when you go into the supermarket right now. But a lot of this has to do with transportation costs and oil, and eventually, of course, um, you know, if you are, can be shopping at a farmer's market where things are coming from closer, that's going to be a lot less expensive or, or right. um you know the other, so so I think we're we're at an ex interesting time of transition, and um, and I think that thinking about food can also maybe helpfully lead the way in helping us to think about sustainability in other regards as well, um, because the reward is really good tasting stuff. <laughs> the website is kitchenliteracy.com, and the book's full title is Kitchen Literacy: How We Lost Knowledge of Where Food Comes From and Why We Need to Get It Back contains a mixture of, you know, fun stories and uh, not, not so much of the dry factual information worth checking out. Thank you very much for talking with us tonight. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks, Anne. Really interesting stuff. Really, really enjoyed the, um, especially the historical aspects. And, you know, lots more questions as, as always. But, yeah, I agree. It's a, it's a very interesting time. I mean, you can't go into especially a higher-end supermarket these days without having, you know, a vast amount of, of uh, of local and or organic uh, produce that that is had it, that has become a value. We've come full circle in some ways. It, it is unfortunate that you're often required to choose between local and organic so far. But uh, farmers markets are uh, not not cheap, as I mentioned. But they're uh, they're at least good local options. Well, uh, we are running a test behind already. Um, so let's. How on. unusual. <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, James Stein is a math professor at California State University, Long Beach, and he will quite freely admit that there are certain branches of mathematics that are completely useless, at least so far. Uh, the main point of his new book, however, is that there are also certain branches of mathematics that are the reason for world-shaking insights into how our world works. The book is called How Math Explains the World, A Guide to the Power of Numbers from Car Repair to Modern Physics. Welcome to BC Radio Live, James. Thank you very much, Eric. Thanks for inviting me on your show. <laughs> well, that was Philip, but I'm Eric, but it all holds. It is all. Hey, my question is, when did they start allowing mathematicians into Redondo Beach? Um, actually, as a matter of fact, there are laws against it, but I sort of circumvented it by, told them I, by telling them that I wrote books. <laughs> the author angle, I got it. Yeah, I, I lived for several years. I'm, I'm from the, I've lived several South Bay places, but including Redondo, myself. Hermosa, Redondo, Palos Verdes, San Pedro uh, are, are the various locations I have lived. It's uh, a nice area. Yeah, it really is very nice. Well, Philip, why don't you take the lead here? Philip is our our, uh, our resident technician, and he is also a math aficionado in, in his own right. And uh, I, I'm I'm really bad at math. I'm good at arithmetic, bad at math, but I'm actually fascinated by the concepts of it, especially physics. Physics, excuse me. I love cosmology, and I try to stay up on you know what's going on with all that. So, but why don't we let Philip take the lead with um, with some questions here? But uh, let's talk about your book. Sure, love well, to. Let, let's start with probably the, the the place that you start in your book. How is it that math explains why our car that our car repairs never get done on time? Well, it turns out that the problem associated with this is that the garage has to schedule the car repairs. And if you compare car repair scheduling with a job such as paying your monthly bills, it turns out that car repair scheduling is very difficult. When you pay your bills, you know, you get a stack of bills, you write out a check, you stick it in the envelope, you repeat this a few times, and you can see the stack of unpaid bills dwindling, and you have some sort of idea of when you're going to finish. But if you look at the problem that a garage owner has in scheduling car repairs, he might get through most of what it looks like he has to do, and then all of a sudden find that all four cars in his shop need the hydraulic lift at the same time, so you have to tear up that schedule and start again. And even when you get a schedule that works, you can always look at it and say, maybe if I change the spark plugs on the Chevy a little earlier, I could have finished sooner. So it's a very, very complex problem. And it also, interestingly enough, ties in with something your previous author was discussing. That's one of the reasons that uh, the food industry sometimes doesn't bring us uh, the freshest food possible. They face scheduling problems, too. Interesting. That's right. getting, getting food when it's fresh to the right place at the right time for consumers and not knowing how quickly consumers are going to buy it, how long it has to sit on the shelf, that sort of thing. Very complex problem. And then you add in spoilage, of course, which, I mean, how unfair is that, you know? I mean, of course, that's, I mean, that's part of the appeal, of obviously, of, of uh, processed foods and foods that can sit on shelves for, you know, more or less indefinite periods of time, because at least once you get it there, you know what you have. Yeah, you know, that's a part of the appeal of mathematics to me, is that there are so many situations to which mathematics applies that you don't really think about until all of a sudden you start thinking about what the problem really is, and you realize that it has um, mathematically related aspects to it. Well, I liked your story quite a bit. It gave me, it, it made me think, and oh yeah, there is another layer there. That is interesting, if my brain worked that way. Why don't you tell us... <laughs> Why don't you tell us your story about about the waiting for your father to to uh, to play football and and how that uh, impacted your <laughs> the rest of your life? Yeah, it turned out that it really did. Um, when I was about seven or eight years old, I like every other kid in that era, I loved to play baseball and football, and I can remember that one afternoon it was in fall. I wanted to go out and throw football with my father, and my father was a very meticulous individual. He kept accurate accounts of how much he'd spent and uh, how much income he'd made, and he said that he had to balance his monthly statements, but he said it, he didn't think it would take very long because the error that he had to track down was an error of 36 cents, 
And when you have an error that's divisible by nine, it usually results from the fact that you've uh, transposed two digits. For instance, if you wrote down 48 rather than 84, the difference between 84 and 48 is 36 cents. And whenever you make a transpositional error like that, where you interchange two digits, the difference between what you wrote down and what it actually should have been is always divisible by nine. So when you see an error that's divisible by nine, it makes you think that you transposed a couple of digits. And I mean, I was just a kid at the time, obviously, and you know, I'd had arithmetic in uh, in elementary school, and it was just learning the addition tables and the multiplication tables. But this showed me that there were patterns that um, underlay some things. And there was uh, there was more of more to mathematics than I uh, than I initially realized, and it's funny how that stuck with me uh, for a large portion of my life. It's as I say, it's the first time that I really thought about mathematics rather than just oh, okay, you memorize two plus three is five. And, and in a sense, what you're saying, or what I'm interpreting when you're saying the word mathematics, the way you're using it now, is is that there are underlying realities, underlying principles, there are things to be found. There are things going on beneath the surface and that those things can be found out. Yeah, I think if you were to ask most mathematicians how they view mathematics, they view it as a language. It's a descriptive language. It's, you know, it's uh, uh, it's not only descriptive in that, you know, you talk about having, you know, having three dollars, but you can make predictions with the language, which makes it a very, very powerful language. And what mathematics strives to do is it not only strives to increase the range of mathematical results, like if you were studying geometry, tries to find out more about triangles, but it also tries to find different aspects of the world that are describable by mathematics. And that's part of the focus of my book. There were three very, very interesting results in the 20th century that showed that um, there were limits to what we could know and what we could do in the world. Most people have heard of the Heisenberg Uncertainty Principle, which says that you can't know everything about the physical world. It just isn't possible. And there was also a result uh, by the mathematician Kurt Gerdell in which he showed that there are true results in mathematics which you won't be able to prove. So logic is not the ultimate tool that we thought it was. And then finally, there was a result in the realm of politics in which it was shown that you can't implement a democracy perfectly. And it's interesting because nobody really, you know, if you were to ask the average person on the street, they don't think of politics as uh, a realm for mathematics other than counting the votes. But what Arrow showed is that there are, there isn't a perfect way to count votes. Interesting. Now, I love actually the section where you're talking about analyzing voting methods. I've heard a lot about uh, instant runoff voting, uh, but you actually compare instant runoff voting to uh, several other voting methods. And uh, in the book, you present a hypothetical scenario in which only 50 ballots are cast for, uh, is it four or five, or five different uh, candidates? And using five different methods, each one of them, a different candidate wins. Same yeah, vote. It- <laughs> Um, yeah, well, actually, as a matter of fact, even though that example was deliberately picked uh, and it was uh, uh, it's structured deliberately to illustrate uh, that the result often depends upon the method by which you count the votes, we're familiar with that in just ordinary elections when you have three candidates because if one of the candidates gets a majority of the votes, there's no problem. But what happens if No candidate gets a majority of the votes. What we do is the normal method is either you allow the person with the most most votes to win or you have a runoff between the top two people. And when you have a runoff between the top two people, what might happen is that the person who was initially the runner-up might get so many votes from the candidate's uh, supporters the candidate that was eliminated, that that person ends up winning. So here's a really simple example of uh, uh, of this phenomenon. And what Arrow showed was that there was no way of getting around this. Right. This was Kenneth Arrow and his uh, impossibility theorem. Right. He was an economist at uh, Stanford University. Well, I have is. to tell you one one thing about your book truly scared me, and it and it and it always scares no me. No author wants is, to hear that. Well, it's, it's not your fault. It's it's the two-slit experiment. 
Oh God! <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I was a little—I uh, was a little hesitant when uh, it came to describing physics because even though I minored in physics um, when I was in college, physics um, has always been a source of tremendous interest, but tremendous difficulty for me. And the two-slit experiment, which was originally devised by Thomas Young in the early portion of the 19th century, showed that, um, showed that light was a wave phenomenon. And it turned out that uh, later on it was possible to construct experiments in which it was shown that light exhibited uh, aspects of particles. This is the photoelectric effect that Einstein examined. And to this date, the actual nature of light is something that is a matter of considerable debate among physicists because it turns out that whether light acts like a particle or acts like a wave depends upon how you look at it, what, um, what you ask light to do. Or, or even when you look at it. I mean, exactly. If, if you check it after the fact, then it's, it's clearly a particle, or sorry, clearly a wave. If you check it while it's happening, it clearly acts like a particle. It's, it, it's confusing. It, it is confusing, but you, um, uh, I think it was uh, the, uh, the physicist Nils Bohr who said something to the effect that if quantum mechanics hasn't thoroughly baffled you, then you haven't really, then you haven't really examined it closely. Um, these are things that, you know, these are things that even the top, uh, even the greatest physicists in the world do not really have a clear handle on what it is that they are doing. What it, they can make mathematical predictions to an incredible level of accuracy, but in trying to describe what the actual phenomena is that they are measuring, they're not all that, uh, they're not all that clear about it. Um, the physicist uh, Werner Heisenberger, who was responsible for the uh, uncertainty principle, said that when you get down to the subatomic realm, you're dealing with atoms, and atoms are not things in the everyday sense. Um, electrons, sometimes they're particles, sometimes they behave as particles, sometimes they, are, they behave as waves. Things in the ordinary world don't do that. Cars always behave as particles. Um, waves on the ocean always behave as waves. Right. Some people think that the Heisenberg uncertainty principle means that, you know, just as fallible humans, we can't accurately measure things at a subatomic level. But in fact, I guess Heisenberg's uh, theory was that they cannot be measured, and our fallibility or infallibility has nothing to do with it. That exactly. Um, it, it doesn't have to do with our inability to measure. It has to do with an intrinsic, uh, an intrinsic property of matter. And the property is, you know, the property is extremely perplexing, but even though it's extremely perplexing and it doesn't, and we don't thoroughly understand it, the amazing thing is that it's given rise to incredible technologies that we take advantage of every day. You know, things like lasers, MRIs, computers, all the things that, you know, that we, uh, all the electronic paraphernalia that we uh, enjoy in the modern world. It's basically based on our understanding of quantum mechanics. In from a philosophical, we can build things. I'm, I'm sorry, excuse me. From, from a philosophical standpoint, which is kind of how I approach all this, because again, math is, is, is not something I'm, I'm very good at on the, on the practical standpoint, uh, but, but I have a reasonably good you know, conception of, of, of the ideas. What, what, ast what astounds me, what amazes me, it just seems like a perverse joke of the universe as far as the uncertainty principle is, the bottom line is you change something by the very act of measuring it. That just cracks me up. The fact that we know what something is, we, we know the value of something if we don't measure it. But, if, but the moment we measure it, we, we actually change that value. That's what amazes me. Well, if you think about it, I think sometimes what, uh, the way people look at that is in the act of measuring usually, usually means that you have to look at it in some way or another, which means that you have to shine a light on it. And when you shine a light on it, light is energy, and when you, uh, you, know, when you apply energy to anything, you change it. it right. I, I, I suspect, Eric, is, is, you're basing that on uh, having watched What the Bleep Do We Know a few times. Um, no, no, no. I've actually read a fair amount on it. I, I read, I, I saw the books that that 
that were mentioned as as I, you're a doctor, I assume, right, Dr. Stein? That's correct. I, yeah. I'm guessing, yeah, uh, that Dr. Stein listed as his most influential. And I had actually read, I think, all but one of them. Not that I understood them, but, you know, I do try to plow through this stuff. Uh, so, so is it possible then to find a way of measuring something that does not – um, uh, you know, focus energy on it? Is that, a, is that possible? Uh, I don't think so, because measurement usually entails the fact that um, you're recording something, and in order to record something, it takes energy to record something. There's an entire branch of uh, physics called information theory, and what they do is they look for the minimum amount of energy that can be expended per, for a unit of information, and um, I'm not that familiar with it, but I do know that there's a relationship between information uh, there's a relationship between information and energy, and in order to extract information from something, you have to exert energy. I can remember when I was in uh, college there were uh, you know people were sort of discussing philosophically whether or not you could just become aware of something without really going through the work and you know maybe you can of some uh, concepts that are outside the scientific realm, but not you can't become aware of uh, any physical property without doing something that involves energy, which is used in measuring the property that you're looking at. It cannot just be received, in other words, (laughs) scientifically anyway. Yeah, exactly. We've spent the last 10 minutes or so talking about the difficulties at the edges of math with, with double-slit experiments and Heisenberg's uncertainty principle. And you mentioned uh, Einstein's famous quote in, uh, near the beginning of your book, do not worry about your difficulties with mathematics. I assure you mine are far greater. I, I guess the, the takeaway, though, might be you haven't written a book saying how math doesn't explain the world because we can't understand any of it. Um, despite all of these uncertainties, in fact, you, you assert that, that what we do understand about math is enough to, uh, to really change the way we view things. Yeah, I, as I said, mathematics is in some sense the ultimate descriptive language. There are things that math does incredibly well. Um, if you look at the physical systems in the world, the computers, the refrigerators, the jet planes, those function remarkably well, and they function well because we understand the mathematics governing the physical laws that re- enable us to build them. But if you look at the what you might call a software of the world, the systems that require us to predict or plan, getting back to the idea of scheduling the car repair or uh, uh, getting the food, you know, getting food to us in the grocery store, we do a bad job of those. And it turns out that that's related to the intrinsic difficulty of the problems. And the problems themselves may be so intrinsically difficult that mathematics isn't capable of doing an optimal job on any of these problems. So it may very well be that we'll never be able to predict the weather. We'll never be able to guarantee that we can, uh, that our car will be ready when uh, we go to pick it up. <laughs> well, the book is How Math Explains the World, a Guide to the Power of Numbers from Car Repair to Modern Physics, and it is available now from Amazon. Uh, thank you very much for spending time with us, Dr. Stein. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Really great stuff. Very interesting, even for simple minds such as myself. (laughs) Well, you know, uh, our next guest, our final guest of the evening, I described them at the top of the show as a New York City psychedelic garage rock band, but perhaps uh, the best description is probably just to listen to a bit of their music. This song is Nuclear Lipstick. I said...
That was a sample of Nuclear Lipstick, the title track from the new album by Crazy Mary. You'll find their website at crazymary.com, and they are here to talk to us tonight. Uh, welcome to BC Radio Live. Uh, let's see, Charles, Nick, and Walter. Hey, it's nice to be here, Eric. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Hi. Hi, guys. How you doing? This, Philip, Philip does our introductions, and gosh, he does them so well, everyone thinks he's me. Oh, Okay. <laughs> I talked to Philip before. How silly of me. Hey, Philip. Hey there. No problems. Well, hey. Uh, yeah. I mean, we just. Uh, I, I think that's a pretty great description of the band. I, I like the combination. You, you have sort of these disparate elements. New York City, all urban and everything, and, and hardcore and tough and and urbane and glossy and and all that. Uh, at least that's one vision of it. And then you have the tribal and the psychedelic. And I mean, it really does kind of cover all that. I, I I really enjoyed listening to the CD. It's it's very, it's very DIY. It's very organic. Uh, but but I mean, the grooves really do come through. And and after a while, I mean, I felt kind of intoxicated by it. Is is that a positive thing? Oh, that sounds good to me. We were kind of intoxicated by it when we made it, and uh, <laughs> you know, a lot of it was just kind of free jamming in, in my house and. And when something sounded good, we'd roll the tape recorders. And uh, we're rolling when things didn't sound good. Well, we rolled it too sometimes, and and uh, <laughs> much was the rolling. The rolling and and the yeah the rolling. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, careful. You know there are archives of these shows rolling around. Uh, <clears throat> <laughs> Forever, amen. So now you guys have been uh, together, or well, you've been a band for for quite a while now. Uh, but this, uh, you got some new members, right, for for this lineup. And this one was recorded last year, is that right? It came out in '07. Yeah, it was, we finished it in '07. Um, it was over kind of a period of time, just different jam sessions that we'd have um, over the years, and then we had some stuff that I had written and some stuff that we wanted to re-record from, from the spontaneous stuff. And we went to uh, our friend's studio and got our old producer, Mike Coyote, who, who was the owner of Coyote Recording Studios in Williamsburg, which is a very, was a very famous studio, but it just closed down last year. So we went to his apprentice's studio called Hard Luck in uh, Red Hook, and we finished it, we mixed it there, and we laid down all the vocals. Interesting stuff. Why don't you give us a little bit of background on on uh, on the band in general? You know, how how did this all come together? It looks like it's been about ten years, right? That's right. We just celebrated our tenth anniversary. Um, Nick, who's on the phone, is our drummer, and I'm Charles, our two original members. Um, we started playing with our friend Walter Stedding, um, I guess in 2001. He was on our Burning into the Spirit World record. I met Walter. Um, and Chris Stein's house, um, who was in Blondie. We, um, Nick and I were in a band before this band that um, used to rehearse in Chris's basement, and Walter was hanging there, and we got to, to be friends with him. So um, I, I needed a fiddle part for a song. It's like, I'm calling that Walter guy, and he's been around ever since, and he's now like a full-fledged member of the band and um, plays on every song. He writes some songs. He sings on some stuff. And Walter's great. He was, uh, before he did this, he was Andy Warhol's painting assistant. And he was part of the, the whole CB scene in the in the late 70s, early 80s. So Yeah, I, I, I read that, that Andy actually produced uh, a solo album. And, and, of course, his only other production credit is the first Velvet Underground <laughs> album. That's, that's a pretty amazing duo there, you know. What do you think, Walter? I think that's the part of Crazy Mary. <laughs> what was Andy like in the studio? Got history. What was he like in the studio with you? Well, he came and he listened to everything, but mostly he only listened to the news on the radio. <laughs> so he was a good producer, huh? He, he, was, he, he wasn't much of a technician, I guess. He was more of a vibe merchant, right? Kind of like Things like that, but 
it, it, uh, he didn't take it lightly. He was he, he really listened to everything. Interesting, very very interesting. He, he um, boy, you know, I, would you have predicted that he would remain as much of an icon of modern art as he is? I mean, his stature is is greater today than ever, you know. And I mean, he was a superstar, of course, during his life. Um, are you surprised at all, you know, that that he has remained and and grown, for that matter, uh, in? Uh, you know, from the aesthetic standpoint and the way he's viewed in the art world, or, or do you think that's fitting? Knowing him personally, I, I didn't have any doubt. It doesn't come as a surprise to me. Uh, now they're having the celebration of what he would be 80, so uh, it's still going on. So knowing the man, it doesn't come as a surprise to me. But I think his who he was as a person is only we're only at the tip of the iceberg. I think it's going to continue to grow exponentially as more and more things are revealed about that time period. It's been a while since he's been around, uh, but th- that all that entire era of his world the velvets and everything that blended right over into the punks and the CBGBs and, uh, you know, from Max's Kansas City to CBs and to the same downtown scene that remains today. So it, it, there's nothing that's a distraction from what he was doing. And be, there, it, it wasn't like there was one generation going into another generation because he was so vital and on the scene that it, it, there was a definite line connecting everything. It wasn't one generation so different from the other. And people like Warhol and William Burroughs were right there supporting the punks that were coming right out of the beats, the beatniks. So there was an un, indivisible, unbroken thread that connected everything. So it's not like there's a reflection looking back on something. It's a continuous thread. So that's why I see it's continuous. Yeah, my 10-year-old my daughter is taking an art class, and uh, they studied Andy Warhol in, in her little uh, art class. I thought that was interesting. Uh, I've got a couple more songs to play here, too. Uh, let's hear a sample from a song called Americanize. Crazy Mary's new album, Nuclear Lipstick. That's, uh, I believe, your eighth album, right, guys? Something like that. I think we have, like, six um, regular releases and two remixes. Uh, gotcha. The, okay. The EP length. So. I agree with you that, I mean, it's not intuitive. It's not obvious that the violin would really fit in as well as it does. But I agree. That's a really... Uh, it's a really organic and, and central part of the sound. It really fits. I was trying to think... Kind of who I was reminded of, not not that it's derivative at all, but just you know what what occurs to me in my mind. And I remember a band I used to love uh, called McKendry Spring. You remember them? Sounds familiar. Yeah, I'm, I'm not familiar with yeah. that. Well, they they were centered on violin, but they were real. They were a psychedelic rock band. I guess they were 70s. Wow. Part, and uh, you know they did extended jams, but the but the uh, the violin was was at the core of their sound. And that's a lot what you what you guys remind me of. So obviously <laughs> you're not copying them because you don't even know them. No, so that, no. that's, well, the early Velvets had uh, oh. Tom Kale on viola, which you know it, 
kind of had that sound, but. I can tell you one of the influences was uh, Jumping at the Woodside, uh, Count Basie. Right. Mm. Well, that that's a different coming from a different direction. That's I like that. That last song, I think Nick's talking about. He came up with that. Recognize yeah. beat, and then we just started jamming to it, and and it became a song. Well, it's almost a Bo Diddley beat. Speaking of yeah, speaking great, of of great. which. Very great. Sad, very sad week indeed. You know. Yeah, it really is. I guess he had, you know, he'd been, wasn't he in a coma? Was I think he had been in. He had, he had the heart attack and he had a stroke before that. And, uh, yeah. And, um, so perhaps perhaps it was time. But, yeah, you know, the, the, one, the one positive thing, if you can <laughs> put it that way, is that, you know, at least when, when these things happen, you know, people do get at least a bit of their due because, absolutely. you know, it's it's already been so long. I mean, I'm old enough to know, you know, I'm I'm old enough. I wasn't literally part of that first generation, but you know, my my musical awareness was starting to happen in the '60s and and certainly into the '70s. So you know, I was real familiar with that first generation and with the '50s guys. But you know, now we're talking now, you know, kids, and by kids I mean probably anyone under 30. You know, they just don't have that first-hand knowledge anymore. I mean, it's hard. You got to put effort into into coming to terms with that first wave, with the greats from the '50s. You know, you guys are kind of referencing the '70s and the punk and the no wave and you know the CBGB scene and all that, going back to the mid '70s, and and that's already 30 years ago. I mean, it's just it's it's hard to believe how much time has gotten away from us. You know? Yeah, yeah. Seems like yesterday, but uh. But yeah, you know, I learned about Bo Diddley and all and all of of his contemporaries from from listening to the Stones when I when I was a kid, and you know they had all these influences, and I was influenced by their music, so I wanted to see you know what made them tick, and I checked out all these great guys like Muddy Waters and Bo Diddley and and Robert Johnson and and Howlin' Wolf, and and you know it's just a whole world of of uh, great big blues out there, you know, and, and got to see Bo Diddley play once, I don't know, 20 years ago or something, and he was amazing, amazing then, you know, and he was 60 years old or something. Yeah, yeah, he was powerful, and he was playing, you know, till till near the end. He was he was one of the last of the really vibrant ones who was out there and still had the beat, and he had the motivation, because, you know, he, he didn't make the money. He, he wasn't making the big bucks. He was a songwriter, but, you know, he, he didn't have the kind of, uh, of success of someone like like Chuck Berry, you know, to, to have that, to have the songwriting money coming in. But, you know, so he had to keep playing, even even being in there. And, and when I'm here in Cleveland, and so I'm, you know, I'm close to the Rock Hall, and, and there's there's always a lot of controversy of, you know, ultimately is the Rock Hall a legitimate thing or not? Is it is it a museum? You know, is it is it, is it trying to, is it stultifying? You know, is it trying to capture an era and not let it change so is it inherently a negative thing or you know uh or is there something you know positive to it and what what's occurred to me is as each of these guys you know each year especially for the older guys when they, at least when they're inducted right then they have some focus on them and some attention is put on them and there's been a number of careers that have been revived you know at least in part due to induction of the rock call and I think he was in that second class. I think way back in the in the mid '80s, and I think he got a, you know a fair amount of attention out of that, and people started looking at him a little bit differently because you know he's he was coming in with the likes of Chuck Berry and and Little Richard and Buddy Holly and you know the the the, the first wave, and uh, yeah, I mean I think he he really really belonged there. But back to you guys before we run out of time because I think we're down to about our final three minutes. Um, Philip, did you say you have another clip? We do have. We have one more clip. This is She Radiates, also from the uh, new album. I'll mention, well, before we lose our live listeners, that you can check out Crazy Mary uh, and their new album, Nuclear Lipstick, as well as their previous albums, at crazymary.com or myspace.com slash crazymarynyc. And this is She Radiates.
unfortunately, we are completely out of time. Thank you to Charles, Nick, and Walter for joining us from Crazy Mary. And also thank you to Dr. James Stein and Ann Velisis from earlier in the show. And, of course, thanks always to my co-hosts, Lisa McKay and Eric Olson. I am Philip Wynn, and this has been BC Radio Live. We broadcast live every Wednesday night at 9 p.m. Eastern, so be sure to visit us live to participate in the chat room and watch the video feed. If you missed the live broadcast, however, audio archives are available online, or you can subscribe to the podcast. Until next week, aloha. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.